Welcome the world to you from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's a little strange when NATO allies begin turning to Russia for arms purchases. The U.S. and Turkey are at odds over Turkey's purchase of Russia's S-400 radar system. In response, the U.S. has kicked Turkey out of the F-35 fighter jet program. The U.S. had been on track to sell 100 F-35 fighter jets to Turkey. Without this jet, uh, Russia says that it's ready to sell Turkey its most advanced fighter jet. With me is William Hartung, director of the Arms Security Project at the Center for International Policy. Thanks for joining me, Bill Hartung. Yes, thanks for having me. You know, it's interesting. I mean, it's uh, sometimes arms purchases, they just really aren't about arms purchases, and it just gets very confusing with radar systems and jet systems. What's really going on between the U.S. and Turkey that is uh, flaring all this up? Well, I think it's primarily political. Um, First of all, there's supposed to be sanctions on countries that buy weapons from Russia. Uh, President Trump could waive those if he so chose. Uh, Also, Turkey was quite upset about U.S. support uh, for the Syrian Kurdish groups, uh, which were f- helping fight ISIS because they view those groups as terrorists that threaten Turkey's security. So you had this pre-existing kind of antipathy. Um, and then there were some in the Pentagon who said, well, you know, if there's Russian technicians in Turkey dealing with this radar system, they can somehow get secrets related to the F-35. So I think all those things are coming into play. And I, I think Trump probably thought that, um, Erdogan was going to cave uh, over the threat of not uh, allowing them the F-35 program, and he miscalculated. Now, when the U.S. doesn't allow the F-35 program into Turkey, we were going to manufacture all sorts of parts, and things were – there was going to be a big economic benefit for Turkey in this. Exactly. Uh, It's a global program, and so you've got places like Turkey and Italy and Japan and others that are building – sometimes assembling the planes in their country, sometimes building uh, parts of the engine and other components. And it, it's kind of akin to what happens domestically, where you you spread production over many states uh, to build political support. This is sort of the global version of that. Well, it, that's a very strange thing, isn't it? Is, is, so is Turkey rejecting that whole system in, in this? Is that part of the uh, equation here that, the, you, that Turkey is just going to kind of say, we're not so close friends with you. We don't want to be a part of your global system. Well, I think that'll be interesting to see because there's other arms sales. Uh, Turkey has a uh, plant to produce uh, F-16s, which are a prior generation U.S. fighter plane. Uh, Turkish arms industry has partnerships with some U.S. companies. So it'll be interesting to see whether this F-35 dust-up and the S-400 uh, dust-up is uh, insulated or, or whether it affects this larger defense-industrial uh, relationship. When you read this, the clips from the statements from the U.S., they seem to think that this is just going to be an isolated thing and it's not going to be anything more than this. But um, – why why wouldn't why wouldn't Turkey if it wants an advanced fighter jet buy one from Russia now? Well, I think they have a lot of US equipment uh purchased over the years, some of it with aid, some of it with their own money. And so there are some compatibility issues, you know, how how the Russian plane would interact with their existing equipment, but that's not an insuperable obstacle should they choose to go that way and also it would be a political signal uh to the United States that, you know, Turkey is not going to be pushed around when it comes to their defense purchases. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's really an open question. It, it may be more serious than 
the administration is is letting on, but it, it's really still somewhat of an open question at this point. Well, you mentioned that uh, the U.S. could put sanctions on a country that buys weapons from Russia. Uh, what are what's the deciding uh, factor there? How does the U.S. make a decision whether to waive sanctions or go ahead and uh, slap them on? What do you think the Trump administration is going to see there? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with um, engaging the politics. I mean, is this a close ally that's helping fighting terrorism? Is it involved in some of the wars the U.S. is still engaged in as an ally? Um, are there other economic benefits of the relationship that override you know, this particular um, issue? I think those are the kinds of things that would come into play. You know, it wasn't that long ago that Turkey uh, shot down a Russian jet in 2015 uh, when it came into their airspace, they say. Uh, and NATO was a little reluctant, it seemed, to back Turkey up at that time. Is that, uh, is that where this thing really – where the distrust begins or uh, is that a – how big a factor is that? I think it's a factor, uh, not the only one, but you know, I think Turkey did feel like NATO didn't rise to its support, and and they claim, which I'm not positive, that the U.S. was slow to offer them uh, one of our own missile defense systems at that time, which is why they turned to Russia. But of course, it's it's a pretty Byzantine arrangement if you're going to buy a missile defense system from Russia because you saw an air threat from Russia. You know, it's so all of this is. It's quite strange if you if you really dig into it. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald talking with Bill Hartung. He's director of the Arms Security Arms, Arms and Security Project at the Center for International Policy. We've been talking about the U.S. and Turkey uh, at odds over Turkey's purchase over Russia's uh, S-400 radar system. Uh, it, is there another factor about the F-35 here that? Um, Maybe Turkey doesn't want it. Is it that really terrific of a jet? There's a lot of issues with the F-35, cost being uh, high among them. It's uh, it's not as expensive as the F-22, which was a prior version that's um, much more souped up in many ways. Uh, but it's one of the most expensive weapons programs the Pentagon's ever undertaken. Uh, domestic uh, independent analysts, both in the uh, Pentagon's Independent Testing Office and Government Accountability Office, groups like the Project on Government Oversight, have shown that in some ways it's it's just not ready for combat. Uh, it's not that good at supporting troops on the ground. It's not that great as a fighter plane. It's kind of this jury-rigged plane that's supposed to do many different things and, and doesn't really do any of them well. So, uh, you know, 100 planes is, is a significant chunk of money if it's something that's um, – of questionable utility. And why does Turkey see an advantage in having the S-400 radar system? Why, uh, what, is, what is good about that system that makes Turkey put its relationship with the United States at stake? Well, I think it's a capable air defense system, but I also think it is kind of a signaling to the United States that Turkey's not solely dependent on the U.S. and its NATO allies. And um, I, I can't read Erdogan's mind, but I don't know if he realized it was going to come to this level of tension over it. He seemed to have this idea that Trump would give him the waiver, this would pass. Uh, so that there may have been some miscalculations on both sides. 
Well, we'll keep our eye on what's happening with the, the U.S. and Turkey over this uh, purchase of the Russia's uh, radar system. But I do want to ask you a question or two about what's happening with uh, arms purchases and Saudi Arabia. Uh, the House and uh, you know has been raising the stakes in its standoff with the White House, and they want to block arms sales to Saudi Arabia. And this is over the war in Yemen. But uh, the Trump administration has been arguing that uh, they they need the arms sales to counteract uh, a threat from Iran. Um, Is this uh, something historic happening here? Uh, Well, Congress isn't normally this active on arms sales. Uh, You know, dozens and scores of them go through every year without a vote or or a hearing or anything. Uh, But I think you know, the Saudi behavior in Yemen, where they've caused the world's worst humanitarian crisis, their brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi, um, has raised the level of scrutiny of U.S. arms sales to Saudi Arabia, which have been quite high for many years. And, um, you know, things happened like Senator Menendez of New Jersey put a hold on some of these sales. Uh, there have been votes against them in both the Senate and the House. So even the Republican-controlled Senate, uh, there's been displeasure uh, expressed. So... Uh, it, it's it's kind of unique, but I, I think it's because of the excessive and, and negative behavior of the Saudi regime. Whether it will spill over into more scrutiny of other sales to other countries is not clear. But the, the thing now would be, could they get a, a big enough majority in each house to override a Trump veto? Uh, or can they find other ways uh, at this? But, but uh, a lot of advocates think that even this level of congressional uh, opposition, even if Trump doesn't let it go the full way, uh, has done things like discourage the United Arab Emirates, which is now pulling back its involvement in the Yemen war, and and that the Saudis have at least been pushed to the peace table, even if those negotiations are quite complicated. It's not clear how quickly they're moving. But so a strong statement by Congress seems to have an impact in the region, um, even if, if Trump is uh, backing the Saudi regime to the hilt. Do you think that the U.S. public is beginning to see weapons sales to Saudi Arabia in a new light? Uh, that weapons sales to Saudi Arabia seem like a, a key piece of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East since uh, I don't know since, since I can remember. And I mean, the Obama administration was happy to sell oodles of arms to Saudi Arabia. The Bush administration before it, everybody, you know, that that was our big weapons buyer. Really going back to Nixon when there was a huge increase uh, when OPEC raised oil prices and it was a way to recoup some of that money. Um, But, um, yeah, I I think attitudes are shifting. Um, I think this regime has a hard time looking like somebody we should be allied with. Uh, I mean, if you're going to murder a U.S.-based journalist in a foreign country and then try to cover it up, uh, if you're going to bomb civilian targets in Yemen, uh, weddings, funerals, food factories, water treatment plants. Uh, It's gotten to the point where the administration's argument is that they just need to learn better how to target is not, it's sort of laughable. It's clear that they're targeting civilians in a form of almost collective punishment of of, uh, Yemenis who they feel are not sufficiently pushing the the Houthi rebels uh, out of the various areas they control. So uh, I think it's kind of a big sore thumb sticking out of like, why would you arm such a regime? And also there is an underlying uh, concern. Uh, the Chicago Council on um, Foreign Affairs has done a poll recently where um, a majority of Americans question the whole idea of selling arms. You know, does it really make sense 
than the U.S. to be an arms supplier. And, and that's been true for some years. But I, I don't think it's been salient, not something people have acted on, just kind of a general feeling they had. And I, I think that's now changing because of the consequences of how the Saudis are using U.S. arms. You know, for many years, they just piled them up. They weren't using them. It was an economic transaction. Uh, but now they're using them to do great damage. You know, you mentioned that uh, we began selling a lot more arms to Saudi Arabia as a way to recoup uh, some of the mon- extra money we were paying for oil during the OPEC price rises uh, during the Nixon administration. And uh, the arms sales just seem to morph into different logics um, I, that um, may or may not make a lot of uh, <laughs> good sense. Uh, the the arms sales to Saudi Arabia during the Obama administration were about uh, ameliorating their feelings for the Iran nuclear deal and things like that. It could be it, it could be anything. There's always some reason to sell arms to Saudi Arabia that is uh, political in nature, and uh, they, they seem to just pile up on top of each other. Yeah, I think part of it is the economics of it. I think the contractors and the Pentagon want to keep that pipeline open. I think part of it is kind of the historic relationship with Saudi Arabia, where they're viewed as a somehow moderate ally in the region, despite their internal human rights abuses and their promotion of extreme uh, versions of of Islam. So um, it does seem like there's this kind of flexible set of arguments. You know, sometimes it's jobs, sometimes it's, you know, we have to assuage their fear that we're not tilting towards Iran. Uh, Sometimes it's they're helping us with you know, intelligence dealing with terrorism, which I think is, I, don't, I haven't seen real strong evidence that that's the case. Uh, and some of it is, I think, just a relationship on autopilot, you know, that's been going on for so long uh, that there's some reluctance to uh, shift gears. And uh, the Trump administration seems, you know, particularly eager to embrace Saudi Arabia. And we saw the G20 summit, and uh, there was a pretty strong embrace by the whole global community of, uh, of, of Saudi Arabia there. That was shocking to me that that the you know the time that has passed since the Khashoggi murder is not that long and, and in some respects at least Mohammed bin Salman seems to be reintegrating uh, at least with some global leaders if if not with global public opinion. Um, I, I thought that was a very unfortunate incident, even with the you know the photo of, of the leaders with, with uh, bin Salman sort of at the center of it as, as if he was some sort of celebrity or something. Bill Hartung is director of the Arms and Security Project at the Center for International Policy. Thanks for joining us and talking about uh, U.S. arms deals with Saudi Arabia and Turkey. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the embargo on Gaza. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're going to talk about Gaza now. Last night, Jihad Abu Salim and retired Colonel Ann Wright spoke in Chicago about lifting the siege, why Gaza matters to the U.S. 
Today and tomorrow, they'll take part in a series of actions to advocate for an end to the isolation of Gaza, including a free Gaza-Chicago River flotilla that's happening tomorrow in the Chicago River. And Jihad Abbasulim is a scholar and policy analyst from Gaza, and he's working on his Ph.D. at New York University. He works with the American Friends Service Committee on their Gaza Unlocked initiative. Nice to see you, Jihad. Nice to see you, too, Jerome. Thank you for having me. A recent Pew poll said that 64% of veterans say the war in Iraq was not worth fighting. Back in 2003, only three U.S. officials resigned to protest the war in Iraq. Retired Colonel Ann Wright was one of them. She resigned from the State Department and then began diligently campaigning for peace more broadly. Iran, North Korea, detentions, Ann is working on all of them. She works with the Gaza Freedom Flotilla Coalition and is a veteran of multiple flotillas to Gaza. Great to meet you, Ann Wright. Thank you, I wanted to ask, first of all, about why Gaza matters now to the U.S. That's what you were talking about last night, Jihad. It seems like there are so many things to care about now. Um, How do we keep our eye on Gaza? Gaza matters because it's a part of Palestine where 2.2 million Palestinians live, including my own family and friends. Um, This part of the world has been under Israeli blockade uh, for more than 10 years. It's been under isolation, under blockade, cut from the outside world. It's almost impossible for people to travel in and out of Gaza. People there have access to uh, an average of four hours of electricity a day. Unemployment rates are very high, especially amongst youth. And the situation is in in ruins. The Gaza Strip, according to United Nations reports, um, will be unlivable by the year 2020. And this is, you know, we're talking in few months. So there is a sense of urgency here when we talk about the situation in the Gaza Strip. It matters because uh, we are all humans and the right moral stance to take is to care about um, what other human beings, fellow human beings are going through. And um, because the United States has been involved in the Palestine-Israel question for a long time, because the U.S. has a lot of stakes in what's happening back there, it's imperative that um, Americans of conscience and the American people in general pay attention to that tragedy, to the predicament of the people of the Gaza Strip and um, do all what they can so that they can pressure their governments and pressure the Israeli government, which is an ally of the United States, to put an end to the suffering and pain that is imposed on the Palestinian people there. Anne Wright, how did you get involved with the flotillas? Well, as Jihad mentioned, I mean, the crisis in Gaza that's caused by the Israeli government's blockade and the complicity of the United States in this. I mean, the U.S. Uh, gives Israel $3 billion a year, over $30 billion over a 10-year period, that is used to purchase weapons to kill Palestinians. That's why I got involved. I'd gone to Gaza in 2009 after the massive, massive 27-day attack on Gaza that killed over 1,200 people, saw the destruction, and came back committed to bringing Americans to Gaza to see what our our weapons were doing. And then the following year in 2010 was this big flotilla of six ships, including a massive uh, 600-passenger ship called the Marvi Marmara, which the Israeli commandos attacked, executing nine people on board, wounding 50, beating up people on all the other five ships. 
showing the international community the impunity that they have not only for killing Palestinians every single day, but now, okay, international community, you want to challenge us? We'll kill you too. Now, could you give us a little more background on the flotilla history? Because there were flotillas before the incident that garnered so much attention in there in 2010, and there's been a lot of flotillas since. But that one's the only one that that got attention. Is that really a good way to go about getting attention for Gaza? Well, you mentioned a very interesting thing. It doesn't get any attention here in the U.S. Uh, However, in Europe and in the Middle East, we get a lot of publicity. And in Southeast Asia, we get a lot of publicity on these flotillas. One of the reasons is international attention on the conditions in Gaza, but also it's for the people of Gaza to let them know that we have not forgotten them. And when these flotillas start out... The social media in Gaza is strong, and the word is spreading. The international community is going to try to sail again. They're going to bring boats. They're going to bring people. School teachers use this as a way of giving encouragement to young kids that maybe someday this blockade will be ended and you will be able to travel freely. You'll be able to do the things that normal kids do. So they bring kids down to the beaches to look out, to see if they can see the boats. They build welcoming messages in the sand, and then they record that. They put that up on social media. So it's a real opportunity for us to bring attention to Gaza. I wonder if you could say something about what the blockade has done to the economy in Gaza, because I think most people figure, well, they're letting everything necessary get in. They're allowing food and medical help and things to go back and forth at a, you know, it's maybe at a slower pace and maybe people don't get the full economic activity they'd like, but they're getting enough. I mean, I think that's what most people think about that. You know, just recently, the World Bank issued a report saying that the economy of the Gaza Strip has been in free fall. And what that means, it means that people can't get jobs, uh, especially young people who graduate college. Gaza is uh, a part of Palestine that has perhaps the highest literacy rates and has the highest rates of university graduates every year. And we're talking about tens of thousands of young people who finish college and end up unemployed, um, unable to imagine a future where they can work, make money, and establish a decent and a normal life. So, you know, when unemployment rates hit 60 or 70 percent amongst youth, this is an alarming situation, alarming in many ways, as it destroys the social fabric because you have these tens of thousands of young people unable to uh, make any progress in their lives. And also it's destructive to their spirit, to their morale, to the way they um, they think of themselves and they perceive of themselves, of their self-esteem. Uh, just in the 2014 war, which this summer marks its fifth anniversary, Israel destroyed tens of Palestinian factories in, uh, in Gaza, including a cookies factory next to our house. What does a cookies factory pose a threat on the state of Israel? And this is the kind of behavior that is not acceptable in a civilized world. It violates international law because it includes an element of imposing collective punishment on a population just because a certain state that is the state of Israel wants to impose its agenda on them. So I can spend hours and hours to talk about what does it mean to live with zero dollars income a month? What does it mean to spend years and years of your life dependent on food packages provided by international aid agencies? You know, the reports coming from Gaza now talk, speak of people lining up outside butcheries 
trying to get the remains of chicken, the legs of chicken, so that they can cook that and, and make food for their children, um, their malnourished children. So this is what the situation looks like. It's pretty grim. It's pretty uh, horrible. And I think it's not acceptable that in 2019, uh, 2.2 million people live under such conditions just because the state of Israel wants. I was reading some statistics from UNRWA and uh, they're the UN refugee agency that works in Gaza and uh, works with Palestinian refugees. And I saw that they said that their food aid has increased over uh, the years. In 2000, there were 80,000 people in Gaza on food aid. And today there's over a million. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and Gaza was a spot for economic productivity. Gaza used to export clothes, food, fruits, vegetables, produce, even at some point, Kippas were made in Gaza and exported to to Israeli market. The destruction, the systematic destruction of Gaza's workforce and of Gaza's economic productivity is happening for these, you know, political reasons that Israel wants to bring Palestinians in Gaza to surrender. And this is a form of, um, you know, violation of human rights that is not acceptable morally or according to international law. Jihad Abu Salim is a scholar and policy analyst currently working on his PhD at New York University. He works with the American Friends Service Committee on their Gaza Unlocked initiative and uh, retired Colonel Ann Wright. She is part of the uh, Gaza Freedom Flotilla Coalition. And tomorrow there's going to be a flotilla in the Chicago River. I think when a lot of people think about Gaza, they think about Hamas. And the blockade came after Hamas was elected in Gaza. And just earlier this week, there was a Hamas official who said that there should be a campaign against Jews worldwide. The official Hamas party said, no, this is not our policy. This is not our idea. But I think most people think, well, that's the underlying thing. That's why there's no trust about what's going on in Gaza, that Hamas and the militants want a destruction of of Israel and destruction of, of Jewish people. His comments were absolutely disgusting. They were absolutely condemned, not only by his own party, Hamas, but also by uh, the entire spectrum of the Palestinian civil society. If you looked at social media the day he made these comments, the Palestinian social media was boiling with fury over these comments. Palestinians condemn anti-Semitism. Palestinians reject this kind of uh, really disgusting messaging that does not represent what Palestinians want. The Palestinian struggle is one that seeks equality and justice and peace and seeks restoring our rights, our human rights to live in peace, to live in dignity and not to be deprived of our basic needs, not to be deprived of our basic necessities just because of who we are. I think the problem here is that um, Palestinians, not only in the Gaza Strip, but also in the West Bank and in other parts of Palestine, have been living under really uh, destructive conditions uh, that is the the Israeli military occupation. And under such circumstances, uh, when an entire population of 2 million people are besieged, cut off from the outside world, where there is unemployment and poverty, and where people have four hours of electricity, surely under such conditions, certain forces and voices like that of this official that you mentioned uh, will thrive and, you know, say the things they say. If we want to think about statements by certain officials, if we look at Israel, um, so just last week, Israel's education minister advocated for gay conversion therapy. Imagine if this comment was made by a Palestinian official, uh, what the reaction would be like. 
every other week or so, you know, we hear really dangerous statements coming from Israeli officials and even members of the government and the cabinet. And no one makes an argument for fencing off Israel. No one in the international community says, let's impose a collective blockade on Israel. Let's put Israel under siege. Let's have the Israelis have four hours of electricity. The only way forward, the only way to overcome the challenges that result from the occupation, the only way to overcome the challenges uh, from the situation that produces certain voices like this and gives a lifeline to violent extremism, the only way to defeat that is to end the occupation, is to bring about peace and justice and to stop treating people the way they are being treated right now while they're subjected to inhumane conditions and deprived of their basic human rights and necessities. We're talking about what's happening in Gaza with retired Colonel Anne Wright. She is part of the uh, Gaza Freedom Flotilla Coalition, and tomorrow there's going to be a flotilla in the Chicago River. Explain what you're doing and how you're trying to build momentum for the flotilla. Well, this summer, uh, 2019, is an interim period between our flotilla in 2018 that had four boats that went uh, 75 days from Scandinavia through the canals of Central Europe, two boats around Europe, having educational events and numerous ports along this three-month trip. These educational events are really a part of the flotilla idea that we take boats to get people's attention. And then when they come in, we talk about Gaza. So that's what we're doing here. We're bringing the the attention of the people of Chicago by going onto your beautiful Chicago River and having boats that will have signs and flags and uh, people along the sides on the waterways to hand out materials on Gaza. It's part of a educational process. And then we, the U.S. Boats to Gaza, which is the U.S. component of this 12 national campaign group, uh, we do fundraising so that we can purchase boats in Europe and then have them staffed with captains and crews and passengers and then sail them on to challenge the Israeli naval blockade of Gaza. I want to ask a question about the Trump administration and what it's done. They have put forward a peace initiative that is an economic development plan promising tens of billions of dollars of economic development. There was a kind of quasi-sovereignty in the Palestinian population. What do you make of what they're doing? Because they're cut off funding to UNRWA, to Gaza, to the Gaza schools. They don't allow Palestinians to come into the U.S. very freely anymore. Uh, There's a whole thing going on there to get Palestinians to sign up to the program. I mean, definitely one of the major highlights of the uh, Trump era is Trump's alliance with Israel's prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. And these are visions that only seek to realize Benjamin Netanyahu's vision to what the situation looks like. And Benjamin Netanyahu's vision is one that is about continuing with the status quo as is. Um, There is nothing peaceful about that initiative because it seeks to destroy any hopes for Palestinian statehood. It seeks to bury the major foundational aspects of what defines the Palestinian plight for justice and peace, which is the refugees issue, Jerusalem. And it seeks to impose this vision on the Palestinian people via collaborating and working with repressive Arab regimes like that of Saudi Arabia and regional forces that are anti-democratic and tyrannical and involved in human rights violations. 
Jihad Abu Salim is a scholar and policy analyst currently working on his PhD at New York University. He works with the American Friends Service Committee on their Gaza Unlocked initiative. There is a Gaza Unlocked initiative website you could go to and hear stories of people in Gaza. Uh, Colonel Ann Wright is here with the Gaza Freedom Flotilla Coalition, and they'll be doing a free Gaza Chicago River Flotilla tomorrow starting at 11 a.m. If people want more information, there's information on the flotilla tomorrow on uh, what website? Well, Voices for Creative Nonviolence and also American Friends Service Committee all have uh, very extensive information about not only what we're doing. Today, we're going to the Boeing headquarters because Boeing, of course, is a great, uh, huge weapons manufacturer, and those weapons are used to kill Palestinians. And we're also going to the Israeli consulate. Thanks a lot for joining us, Colonel Ann Wright and uh, Jihad Abu Salim. Thank Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll have Weekend Passport with Nari Safavi, and we'll let you know about global events happening near you, including an exchange project with Japan. We're going to hear music from that, so stay tuned. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have a global good time on the weekend. And Nari Safavi is our global impresario. Good to see you, Nari. Good day, Jerome. It's uh, good to be here again, but it's a little bit of a difficult moment. Uh, This is the first Friday for me. We have all been mourning uh, the loss of Milos Telek, and uh, this is the first Friday for me. I'm on the air without... Milos being amongst us. Uh, and Nari and Milos were uh, fixtures in the pre-warm-up room, the green room here. Yeah, it is. It's a bit of a sense of, you know, well, what am I doing next? And what am I? I always came after Milos, who was, in my mind, a legend, a person I admired for a long time as a fan, before I was involved with his station. Uh, and I learned a lot about cinema from, and it was just a great privilege and a gift for me to be invited to actually be part of a tag team with him and sometimes be on the air with him at the same time. And uh, thanks to you and uh, thanks to uh, Milos, I, was, I felt very welcomed in, in that role. And his loss is very, very heavy for me. And it's difficult. And a person who has been very dear to my life. And anyways, I just hope that he's in a good place. And I think that, uh, you know, we just uh, may his memory live long. So... We're talking about uh, film contributor Milo Stelek, and uh, we'll move on and do our, ter- yeah, our terrific uh, segment let's, where let's we've got we, Milo would want us right, to have yeah. a good time and exactly. Milo would still want us to keep on marching. So, uh, but anyway, it's a very hot and uh, um, and a very humid day today, and there is actually a film at the Gene Sisko Film Center this weekend called 
cooked about the uh, that 90, 1995 heat wave in Chicago. And that's uh, where uh, 700 or more residents people died. died. And I remember on that hottest day of that that year, uh, on that day, I went out jogging under like 105 degree temperature. <laughs> I, don't know, I was crazy enough and young enough to be doing something like that. But uh, but anyways, that is uh, that is uh, that film is showing at the Gene Sisko Film Center. This is going to be the last few days where it will be showing, and it's at 164 North State Street. It's a fantastic place to catch this film called Cooked. And it's basically, uh, it's called Cooked and something about a, a cooked survival, survival by, by zip, zip codes. Code. Exactly. Uh, and uh, it's all about the zip codes who had facilities and people got to live under that circumstances. And the, circo- uh, and the zip codes in Chicago area that didn't have facilities, they had higher death tolls. Uh, Nari, there's some other things going on with Chicago Shakespeare Theater that you want to mention? Exactly. Our neighbors here in Navy Pier? Our neighbors in Navy Pier have been doing some really fantastic stuff, uh, and it's going to be the last two or three weeks of them being around. One is the play called Six, which is more of a musical, and it's about the wives of uh, King Henry in England, the Tudor era, and uh, they six wives that have had a history of beheading, divorce, and all of that. It's been made into to a musical that's really fantastic and it's, <laughs> it doesn't seem like a likely thing for a musical exactly <laughs> it's it sounds it's it's really it's 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 both entertainment and art in my opinion and it has a potential of living beyond this chicago performance this summer that's going on and it's really worth checking out and you can bring the kids to navy pier at the same time because uh, because the Shakespeare Theater Company is also doing a Wizard of Oz out there in the garden in Navy Pier. So you can bring the kids and leave them over there for one show and the adults go ch- catch this musical, Six. Uh, and it should be a lot of fun for the entire family to just come and spend the whole day at Navy Pier. Well, let's get on to our featured element here during Weekend Passport. And Tatsu Aoki is here. He's a composer. He's a performer of traditional and experimental forms of music. And it is great to see you again, Tatsu Aoki. Thank you for having me. And hi, Nari. Hello, Tatsu. Yes. It's an honor to have you and your ensemble here. Yes, thank you very much. Um, Nari and I uh, often bump into each other on other other multicultural uh, events, and uh, we've been friends since then. So I'm happy to be here this morning. Tell us about this uh, exciting project. There is like a uh, month-long collaboration going on between uh, the U.S. and Japan. Yes. Um, so U.S. in Japan, and particularly in Japan, is the northern part of Japan. It's in Hokkaido Island, and uh, we have a city called Obihiro. And this whole area um, near Sapporo is called the Tokachi area. And uh, we've been doing a lot of exchange program with the Tokachi artists. And uh, uh, several of them had uh, exhibition at the Japan Information Center right down the street uh, on uh, uh, Michigan Avenue for several years. And... uh, uh, myself and Mr. Hanaki, uh, Tsutomo Hanaki, um, decided to bring that parts of the group exhibition into a arts gallery. And yes. uh, Mr. Hanaki had a very particular affection to 
Logan Square area. So I see. We wanted to do some exhibition <laughs> in the Logan Square area, and we, you know, we, the Hairpin Arts Center is a friend of ours, and we do a lot of stuff together. So we propose, and, and now for the first time, I think it moved to where Mr. Hanaki would like to have the exchange project. Wonderful. Yes. Yeah, and you have some uh, really talented musicians from Hokkaido yes, here yes, performing yes. with it's, you if it's you want to um, them. Yes. Um, um, we have a, a dynamite, Hiroshi Mehata, um, who's been active in Europe and some in the Indonesia and mm-hmm. other parts of it as an electronic soundscaping artist. And the sound art, and he's a musician as well. Wonderful. And uh, so what we did is, um, he's he resides in Tokyo right now, mm-hmm. but uh, so he visited Tokachi area okay. for about uh, two weeks or so, and collected all this sound essence and elements from that area, and he is recontextualizing this sound into this electro electroacoustic music. Uh, okay. Then, you know, we have our usual Chicago experimental suspects that joining him, uh, and we have a concert. And Hiroshi Mehata is here. He can introduce himself. Yeah, I'm Hiroshi Mehata. Nice to meet you. And so I'm really honored to be get uh, such a great opportunity through this exchange event. Yeah, so Mr. Tatsu, so very great artist and also a great musician and filmmaker. So it is, it's really... And it's, it's, no, great to, hey, it's great to have you. And I, now there's a piece called Nothing Defamatory that yes. we're going to hear. <laughs> right. Yes. Uh, tell, tell us about Nothing Defamatory. It's a... Uh, I'll, I'll explain okay. it. Right, Tatsu will right. explain. Yeah, so th- this is the part of the sound exchange project, the very first one. You know, I have a band called Miyumi Project in Chicago mm-hmm. where we use the Japanese taiko drumming in the uh, um, experimental experimental jazz collaboration, I think. That's my... It's a fantastic my, show I've seen. It. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we used the samples of his sound oh, and, I see. and kind of mixed it into my Miyumi Project uh, a song. And this is what the nothing yeah. defamatory is. Yeah. Uh, nothing defamatory. That sounds great. Break that down for us. What are some of the sounds we're um, hearing there? So we're hearing, uh, of course, my acoustic bass and uh, uh, cello, 
and clarinet by Edward Wilkerson and taiko drum, of course, our Japanese taiko drum, and a little bit of the high frequency sampling sound here and there. And, you know, if we listen to the whole composition, right. I, I believe it's like a 10 minutes long, right. but you begin to hear more and more of the sampling uh, that he puts in, and it should margin. And we kind of、uh, thought that this would be sort of a meditative. Electro acoustic experience that,、yes. that we can offer to the audience. And you have another member of your ensemble you want to introduce? Well, he is the, actually a producer、okay. uh, of the Tokachi area, Mr. Gotcha, gotcha. Mr. Tsutomu Hanaki. And people,、right. people call him Tom,、yeah. Tom Hanaki. <laughs> and、uh, he's from Hokkaido. He's the,、um, I think, instigator of this whole project. Right.、Yeah. Well, thanks very much for、yeah. doing this. This is a great opportunity for us、uh, to find out more about art from Japan. Yeah. Um, well, how did you get so interested in Logan Square? What do you like about Logan Square? Yeah, yeah. And、uh, seven years ago, and I come to here and、uh, first time. And、uh, it, it's just、uh, traveling、uh, to go around the,、uh, North America and the Ten City. And uh, I, uh, I can't uh, uh, describe the why I love this here. Yeah, but uh, the, uh, the first step in、uh, Wicker Park. That I get the,、uh, the accommodation there and I go around the Logan Square, Wicker Park, and uh, uh, strolling. It's so nice feeling. Yeah, and uh, uh, I feel uh, uh, I want to、uh, stay here longer. And on the other hand,、uh, I want to、uh, do i n g something in here. And、uh, seven years. Uh, for seven years, and I tried and something that bring the、uh, artist from Japan. And uh, uh, two years ago, i very lucky to meet、uh, Tatsu. And Tatsu、uh, uh, advised everything to and, uh, uh, organize an artist event and music. And, and, and if people go to the Chicago Obihiro. Website, there、yes. is there's a list of all the events that are going to take yes, place. Yes, it's,、uh, it's kind of the 28th. A, yes, complicated spelling for Chicago Obihiro. So you can also go to Hairpin Arts Center、mm-hmm. website and you, you、right. connect to the special website. I see.、Yeah. I see. Wonderful.、Uh, you know, I think、uh, the general impression、uh, people don't realize how diverse. Japan is and how varied it is、mm-hmm. going from the far north, you know, which tends to be、right. almost,、uh, you know, polar in, in right, nature, right, right. going to the south where it's more tropical and、right. it's very,、uh, right. and the cultures vary at the right, same right, time. Right. Too. A, but I think it's a very interesting、um, influence that, like,、uh, when I was in Japan, when I was a teenager, I would listen to American music that which c o m e from. Texas, and I will listen to the music from New York and LA, and all kind of bundled together in my mind as a America, you know. And,、right. and I think it's kind of like that in the Japanese music. A lot of people don't realize a lot of the interesting things come from this Hokkaido area. Right. Northern, right. You know. Well, Japan is also a more ancient society, so it has had more time for different evolutions in different parts of the、right, regions、right. of it. So, but I'm glad that you know, we're, we're 
getting to understand regions of Japan and Hokkaido, uh, the island up north, is right. really fascinating. Right. I think I virtually know nothing about it. And, well, I think people yeah. know the, the capital of Hokkaido, Sapporo. Sapporo, right. right? So it's famous for beer. The beer, yeah. <laughs> Sapporo, München, in yeah. Milwaukee, yeah. the three beer places. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> now, now, the uh, performances that you're doing, you're doing one tonight and yes. tomorrow yes. at 9 p.m., and they're going to be at Elastic Arts on Diversity. Yes, that's correct. Yes, that's also our favorite place uh, right. to perform experimental music. In, uh, yeah, and it's late night. It starts at 9 p.m. Yes, so both right, nights. Right. So. Yeah, you, you have to kind of get ready. You yeah. can have a dinner and a yeah, drink. Yeah, go have and dinner and everything. You can get yes. in the zone. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, you're going to perform a piece for us. Yes. Uh, we're going to go out on some music here, and I want to thank Nari Safavi for another fine edition of Weekend Passport. Thank you. I want to thank Steve Bynum and Julian Haida for producing, Mike Gilmore for engineering, and um, we will get in the zone with Tayatsu, uh, Tatsu Aoki's new jazz ensemble, and you can see them uh, t- at the Elastic Arts, 3429 West of Versi Avenue tonight and tomorrow night at 9 p.m. And thanks for coming and doing the Chicago Obihiro Exchange Project. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. faster and faster. Sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.